The embers of the alchemist's furnace filled the small chamber with their glow. The light spilling upon jars of strange powders, bits of metal, bottles of liquid mercury, and shelves upon shelves of books. Among them stood works in ancient Greek, Arabic, and medieval Latin. Sitting at his table, the alchemist scratched some astrological calculations into his wax tablet with a metal stylus, softening the wax with his thumb to erase a mistake here and there. A smile of satisfaction crossed his pallid face. The planets were in the perfect position. The time was indeed right. With burn-scarred hands, he drew the egg-shaped jar out of the flames, blackened contents swirling about as he opened its airtight seal. The nauseating reek that rose from it took away his breath as the room began to spin about him, his lips bloodless with the strain not to retch. He steadied himself. Ten years of work had come to this. For the past three, his patrons, the Baron and Baroness, had purchased all his materials, housed him, and paid him for his scholarship. But they grew impatient. This attempt had to be the one that worked. If not, they might expel him to be replaced by another or worse, accuse him of fraud. He should have listened to Albertus Magnus's words in his Libellus de Alchemia. One should be on one's guard, before all else, against associating oneself with princes or pontates in any operations because of two dangers. They will ask you, from time to time, Master, how are you succeeding? And, not being able to wait for the end of the work, they will say that it is trifling, it is nothing, and the like. You will suffer continued humiliation because of it. If, however, you do succeed, they will try to detain you permanently, and will not permit you to go away, and thus you will be ensnared by your own words. Pulling his mind back to the present, he poured the contents into the glass alembic to distill the shadowy substance. He kindled the flame beneath the glass and saw condensation rise and gradually slide into the long glass tube, running down its length to drip slowly, one drop at a time, into the second sealed glass vessel. Encouraged, he placed several more logs on the fire to speed the process. Stretching his back, he felt a sense of unease and pulled a book from the shelf. Of the Sum of Perfection, first book, by Geber. After a time, he found the passage which he sought. Therefore, when arsenic or sulfur are to be sublimed, their sublimation must necessarily be made by remiss fire, because, they having their most subtle parts uniformly conjoined to the gross, their whole substance would ascend without any purification, 
Yay, blackened and combust. It must be done on remiss fire. Remiss fire? Mild fire. At that moment, he heard a slow creaking, as of cracking ice. And with a resounding blast that shook the room, he felt innumerable shards of black, poison-coated glass pierce his back. Welcome to Arcane. I am Samuel Gillis Hogan, a PhD researcher focusing on the history of magic. And this is episode three, A Coveted Pebble, Medieval Alchemy. Unlike some television shows that conflate alchemy with the ritual magic discussed in episode one, or video games that use the word alchemy to refer to potion-making or herbalism. Historical alchemy was a complex art of its own. Many people today think of alchemy as the confused early precursor to modern science and chemistry, but this is simply inaccurate. Alchemy was a sophisticated discipline, the ultimate goal of which was to produce the philosopher's stone. This stone, among other properties, was understood to have the power to convert any metal into gold and produce the elixir of life that would heal and extend the longevity of its drinker. It is true that some of the findings and discoveries of alchemy were invaluable to scientists, and some scientists, such as Isaac Newton, practiced and studied alchemy, which may or may not have informed their other discoveries. Yet, to say that alchemy is merely the early roots of science would be to say that a cloud is merely the early roots of a puddle. Some of the rain from a cloud may have fallen and pooled together, but the cloud was far more than that small contribution. A lofty and expansive cloud is greater than what could ever fit in a single puddle. And there are things in puddles, such as dirt and stones, that clouds cannot include due to their nature. The way alchemists understood nature to function was fundamentally different from modern conceptions of the universe. The methods they employed to pursue the marvels of transmuting metals into gold extending human life, and creating the Philosopher's Stone, were based upon how they understood the natural world and its composition. To understand their art, we must first explore how they conceptualized their world. In the Middle Ages, natural philosophers, roughly the medieval equivalents of modern scientists, understood everything in the world to be composed of the four ancient Greek elements. Water, earth, fire, air. Long ago, the four elements were first proposed by the Greek philosopher Empedocles in the 5th century BCE. 
These were later expanded upon by Aristotle, who explained that there are four qualities that all material things have. They are either warm or cold, or they are dry or damp. Drawing upon Plato's writings, he argued that all the elements were interconnected, for they all arose from a common substance, the prima materia, the first raw material of the world, which would later become very important to alchemists, but I get ahead of myself. As Aristotle wrote, fire, air, water, earth, come to be from one another, as all things do that can be resolved into a common and ultimate substrate. The elements were connected by which of the four qualities they held. Fire was hot and dry. Air was hot and damp. Water was cold and damp. Earth was cold and dry. Thus the elements produced a sort of cycle, with each having its equal and opposite force. Water and fire were composed from opposing qualities, as were earth and air. If one takes cold, dry earth, say a piece of coal, and heats it, it loses its coldness and combusts into fire. If one adds moisture to the now hot and dry fire, it then loses its dryness and evaporates into a gout of air. If one cools that hot and damp air, it loses its quality of heat and condenses into water. And if you dry out that now cold and damp water, you are left with cold, dry earth just as one who takes a bucket of seawater and dries it is left with mineral deposits like salt from which the earth is made. Yet the four elements were not understood as literally as this. All of the fire, water, earth, and air in the world were imperfect combinations of the elements, as was everything else under the moon. But they are the closest things in the world to embodying the natures of the pure elements. I say below the moon because Aristotle added a fifth element, ether, which is the source of the word ethereal. It was also known as quintessence, from the Latin quinta essentia, meaning fifth essence. While everything in our sublunary world was composed of the four shifting elements, everything in the celestial realm, including the moon, sun, stars, and five visible planets, were comprised of incorruptible ether. The purity of this ether is why the celestial region was perfect, eternal, and did not decay. It was not subject to the elemental impurities that caused deterioration within the world. Most forms of decay and corruption were understood to be caused by imbalances in the elements, 
like how copper turns green in air, and iron rusts in water. So when the elements are perfectly balanced in a metal, you get one that does not tarnish, corrode, oxidize, and so forth. Namely, you get gold. Gold does not degrade. It is not poisonous. It is malleable enough to be shaped, but strong enough to keep its shape. It is additionally lustrous and beautiful. The idea that elemental balance resulted in stability and warded off decay is also reflected in medieval medicine. For just as everything else below the moon was made of the four elements, so too were our bodies. The ancient medical writers Hippocrates, and especially Galen, popularized the idea that the body was composed of four bodily fluids, called humors, which correlated with the four elements. These were blood, which aligns with air, yellow bile, with fire, black bile, with earth, and phlegm, with water. Galen's writings in particular remained very influential throughout the medieval period, and humoral theory became a core feature of how people understood the human body and both physical and mental health. The excess of a humor might bring on an illness or affect the temperament. For example, someone suffering depression was experiencing a surplus of black bile their hearts being weighed down by the element of earth. A person full of rage, or libido, was suffering a buildup of yellow bile, their hearts heated by fire. Such an imbalance might be caused by the patient's immoderate lifestyle or diet, bewitchment, or the astrological influences operating on the individual. There were many ways to balance out a person's humors, and by extension, the elements within them, such as engaging in certain activities, eating special diets, or, and this is the most widely known and misunderstood of these practices, the letting of blood. The medieval understanding was that our bodies constantly attempt to regulate the humors through sweating, urination, and other such bodily functions. Dramatic examples of purging bodily fluids, such as vomiting and coughing up blood, were the body's attempt to regain internal harmony in the face of extreme imbalances. Bloodletting was understood to give the body an opportunity to discharge any excess humors, allowing it to balance and heal itself in a controlled manner. One's body could eject the imbalance and pour that forth into leeches or from an incision. But when the humors were in balance, a person was the very vision of health. Even of temperament, without illness, and for whom the decay of age came very slowly. This is the basis of how medieval natural philosophers and physicians understood the material world to work. 
Now let's look directly at the alchemists and their art. While the details of alchemical processes are sometimes veiled in jargon, symbolism, and intentionally misleading language, and while there were various theories, approaches, and practices of the art, here is an imperfect generalization about how alchemy was performed. The alchemist would first take his starting materials and putrefy them through a series of processes intended to reduce them down until they became the prima materia, the raw, formless material with which they believed God to have made creation. The stem cells of matter, if you will. In some methods, the alchemist then had to purify this substance to extract the fifth element of ether from it, which could then be congealed into the philosopher's stone. In 1471, the English alchemist Sir George Ripley wrote that these steps were calcination, in which stage the substance was reduced to ash, and conjunction, bringing together the opposing principles of sulfur and mercury, which we will discuss further in the episode on Arabic alchemy. After this, the substance would have achieved a metaphorical death and was reduced to the prima materia. Then began the various stages of purification. The first was sublination, a distillation process in which the substance was heated in a lower vessel to extract its quintessence, which was supposed to crystallize above. Then comes multiplication, a process intended to increase the potency and quantity of the final stone. While all these processes vary, Sir Ripley wrote that the key to multiplication was kybation, in which the stone, at this point a reddish powder, was supposed to be fed mercury. Upon completion, the ether from the purified prima materia was supposed to have congealed into the philosopher's stone, at which point it could enter the stage of projection in which the stone was used to transmute metals into gold or produce the elixir of life. But let us reflect on those effects. It can turn any metal into pure gold. It can purify the body of illness and extend life, even improve the moral temperament of the one who consumes the elixir made from the stone. You see, the stone did not have two separate arbitrary effects. It did not make gold and give eternal life. It had a single effect. It perfectly balanced the elements. The elements were balanced in metals, and they became the metal with elemental equilibrium, gold. The elixir brought the humors into balance within the body, and the person became healthy while the deterioration of age was slowed or stopped. Is it any wonder 
that this would consume the minds and lives of the scholars and nobles who sought it. A shard of ethereal perfection that could bring balance and stability to our chaotic and decaying world. The art of alchemy is a complex and sometimes contradictory subject. Theories rose and fell. Practices differed as each alchemist experimented with the work. There were strong spiritual components, which I have hardly touched on here. But in time, I will delve into many more aspects of alchemy, as well as other magical arts and occult sciences, which you can listen to in other episodes. Alchemy's roots are deep, stretching from various cultures and antiquity, being brought together and expanded in the early medieval Arabic world, before filtering into Europe in the High Middle Ages, where it circulated and flourished in the late Middle Ages and Renaissance. To say that it is merely the early roots of science is a disservice. Some aspects of modern science may have been drawn from alchemy, but alchemy was distinct. A system of thought and practice that was complex, nuanced, and deeply interwoven with how people understood the natural world to function since antiquity, until scarcely more than a couple centuries ago. Arcane is released on the first and third Wednesday of each month, weekly in October. If you wish to learn more about alchemy, I recommend reading The Alchemy Reader by Dr. Stanton J. Linden, Alchemical Belief by Bruce Janekak, The Jewish Alchemist, a History and Sourcebook by Dr. Raphael Patai, and Alchemy by E. J. Holmyard. To learn more about medieval natural philosophy in general, see The History of Magic, Science, and Belief by Dr. Stephen P. Marone. The Natural and Supernatural in the Middle Ages by Dr. Robert Bartlett. And Albertus, Magnus or Magus. Magic, Natural Philosophy, and Religious Reform in the Late Middle Ages by David J. Collins in Renaissance Quarterly. Further books and articles on the subject can be found in the bibliographies of those works. Alchemy is a complicated topic and a difficult thing to discuss briefly. Indeed, the alchemists who practiced it were sometimes driven to such frustration at the unclarity and coded language of the art that they gave up the use of books written by fallible and secretive humans and turned to using ritual magic to summon spirits or angels who knew the secrets of nature and who they could command to teach them the art of alchemy directly. Despite this, they continued writing their books of alchemical instructions many of which survive to this day. For hundreds of years, the learned sought the philosopher's stone. Many nobles funded them in the hope that their scholar, their alchemist, might secure for them 
unending wealth and immortality. And this was a very real part of our history. <laughs> 